VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to day four at Qatar 2022 and the game podcast. I'm Hugh Wisencroft out in Doha. Tony Cascarino also out here alongside me. Alison Rudd back at home reflecting on another surprising day at the tournament, which includes Germany losing their opening game for a second straight World Cup defeat by Japan, a result that leaves them at big risk of back-to-back group stage exits. A halftime tactical switch from the Japanese from a 4-2-3-1 to a 3-4-2-1 was the big difference. Tony and I were both at this game as Japan battled back from behind to earn a well-deserved 2-1 win thanks to Takuma Asano's finish. It was an incredible atmosphere, I've got to say personally. The Japanese fans are incredibly passionate. They came out in numbers. Plenty of German fans as well. They were brilliant in the first half. Um, Japan just made it way too easy for them. They absolutely dominated. I think they had around 80% possession, you know, 15 or so shots in the first half you could only see one winner but the application the tenacity the work rate in the second half from the Japanese was fantastic and we all love to see an underdog win a game they got there in the end Tony I really enjoyed it how did you find the game? Well it was amazing Hugh the fact that like you touched on that Japan were not even in a game that they were second best in every department but kept going I I think I, I can't remember a manager making, and from the Japanese perspective, as many changes as he did, and every one of them worked. Because if you take, obviously, the goals that they scored from Asano and Duon, that was typified all these substitutions. They changed their formation in the second half, went to three at the back, pushed the two fullbacks on. They put implemented more strikers up front. I felt... I just thought everything they'd done in the second half and they deserved to win the game by the end. And Germany had really switched off you. As you know, we were, we were sitting next to each other in commentary and the Germans just thought they could cruise through, win 1-0. There were certain incidents in the game that didn't quite work for them and I just felt... They took the foot off the pedal and they paid the ultimate price. They eventually got beat. I have to say, Alison, I I enjoyed the salty German tears at full time. I reveled in it. I laughed. I really enjoyed it. I don't know why I enjoyed it so much. But um, yeah, they were sort of outside bets um, and they played with, I think, too much arrogance. You know, I think they say that you've got to earn a win and it really didn't felt like they applied themselves at all. They didn't take the game by the scruff of the neck when when things got going. And Japan really wrestled a result away from them. Them. And, and I did tip Japan to do well, so I was also uh, quite happy about that. How did you see the game? I wouldn't be as harsh on Germany as you have been, actually, Hugh. Just before, well, about 10 minutes before Japan got their equaliser, they did look like they were hanging on 
just just Japan were just hanging on. It didn't it didn't feel like they were coming into the ascendancy at all. But that was at the moment where you felt Germany had actually maybe clicked, not totally, but clicked a bit and showing their superiority. I don't think they were trying to cruise their way through. They had some really good chances that didn't come off. Um, I, 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 I think it was more, it was definitely, it was less about Germany and more about, as you've already discussed, the, the, the second half substitutions and the switch in formation, which, which weirdly, I mean, I think what was amazing about the tactical switch was that it made Japan both more solid and more attacking at the same time, which is quite some feat if you can pull it off. But I did, I did, I actually am left not gloating. I actually feel slightly sorry for Germany. I think they came into the game knowing there weren't many, when you were there, there didn't seem to be many Germany fans there. A lot have deliberately stayed away because they don't agree with the World Cup being held in Qatar, they would have liked to have seen, they would actually, a lot of German fans would like to have seen the National Federation say, no, we're not going. They would have, they would have liked that. They would have liked to boycott. They were, the fans were cross about the armband saga. And that meant the players knew there were political ramifications going on in the background that, that, that they're going to uh, cast to see if they can maybe wear the one love armband in the next game. Uh, they covered their mouths uh, to show that they, you know, they still want to be seen on the side of right. And I think if all that is going on with the stadium being against you, because as you say, um, the Japanese supporters were fantastic, it all has an impact. And also their Im imperiousness has gone because of their showing in the last two major tournaments, World Cup and Euros. I was there when they were knocked out in Russia and they are better than they were then. They were more calamitous and lacking in oomph then than they are now. I think in football terms, they were slightly unlucky because I don't think anyone could have coped with the switch that Japan made. And also, if you think about it, beautiful though Asano's goal was. I do think it's one that you score one in a million times because <laughs> it, it was almost like I don't believe my eyes. Um, am I right also, Hugh and Tony, in that the stadium didn't realise it either? I don't know. I don't know if the, it had the normal feeling of a, an average game, to be perfectly honest. I think the Japanese fans, they created, they almost sucked the ball into the back of the net at the end that they were at. And the German fans, there were, I think you're right, there were very few. And I think it did dampen the German spirits in a way. There was nothing to lift them. There were Germany fans in there, but I think if you guys remember the England game, there's a huge gap between the fact that, I mean, there are only a few fans from your nation there comparatively to what it would be if it was held elsewhere. But also, there's basically a running track space around the pitch. Did those inside the stadium take a few seconds to realise that the winner had been scored? Because it was kind of surreal on the telly no because the Japan fans were right behind where it was scored they were willing the ball into the back of the net remember Japan had been knocking on the door for a while and actually the sense that Germany were almost shell-shocked and the goal was coming and you could sense you could you know everyone was sniffing out the shock result the Japan fans the supporters but also the whole of the bench and the coaching staff could sense that something was going to come something special could happen there was a real possibility of it and actually, when, yeah, when the ball hit the back of the net, it was almost like, finally, the goal has been scored because we felt like it was coming for a while. And actually, one of the big questions was, I think, to take away from the game was the lack of a response from Hansi Flick when the Japanese coach changed the tactics, which totally changed the course of the game. 
there was no real response from the German bench. We just couldn't believe that they hadn't got enough power, if you like, to respond and change the momentum of the game once again. But, you know, we could all we could all believe it. I think there was kind of disbelief more more so at full time that actually Japan had made it. But when the goal went in, it was almost expected. I don't know how you thought of um, how you felt about it, Tony. I would say one thing, Kieran, because I said to, to, to you during the game is the the strange moment in the second half when a ball gets played over the top and Rudiger's chasing and he... The forward, I think it was Asano, who was chasing him, and he clearly sees that he can win the race, Rudiger, and he mocks the Japanese player as he runs in a really strange running style. And I remember thinking, why have you done that? Why don't you just get there, you know, pick the ball up and then start again? And it was a really weird moment. I, I didn't start understand why he mocked the player as he was running. Uh, as if to say, I can get here much quicker. And, and it just felt weird. And I, look, the Japanese found a way of hurting Germany. And I thought their belief just grew and grew. With every substitution, it improved everything that was happening for them in the game. And what was Germany left with by the very end? A big centre forward, knocking it forward, knocking it down and trying to get on the end of... And you, can, you can say, well, okay, that's a tactic. But that tactic really didn't work at all. And for Hansi Flick as a coach of Germany, you know, do we really expect Germany just to go quite basic, down the middle, knock down? This is not 1985 or 1990. This is 2022. And I, I just didn't get it. And I, weirdly enough, I see Argentina do the exact same in their game that they lost against Saudi Arabia. You're thinking Argentina are losing the game. And what did they end up doing? They ended up trying to just cross the ball, get it in, and and the Saudi Arabian defenders were so comfortable just heading it clear. And that's what I thought Japan were as well. So it was a very strange way for the game to end. They were getting blocks, Japan. and But it, it wasn't enough that convinced me this is a very good German team. I wouldn't agree with Alisson. This is much better than the team of 2018. OK, we're through one game and they might prove me wrong. But I thought they were really average uh, as a team. And they've got quality players. You know, Kimmich is a terrific player in midfield. Gundogan, who we know from Man City. They didn't control the ball or the game as much as I thought they would. I looked at them two in midfield and thought, well, first of all, the biggest problem is Japan getting the ball off the two in midfield because them two can keep it for fun. And they gave away and lost possession a number of times, even in the first half, which really surprised me. I think, actually, there was a, they, they were too arrogant. They were too complacent, the Germans, in this game. Like I said, there was a lack of a response from, from Hansi Flick on the bench. But ultimately, amongst the starters, Kai Havertz wasn't playing that game like it was a World Cup group game and it was vitally important. Jamal Musiala was meant to announce himself on the biggest stage and you know he was on the edge of, of the performance really on the periphery and there were a number of, of German players who really weren't aggressive enough tenacious enough and maybe not we keep saying fit enough but I don't even think it's that it's just they haven't got up to a rhythm some of the bigger nations and um, and I think this first week of the tournament is showing that some of them just aren't ready for this level from the off I think Alison what did you make? It wasn't complacency it was as I referred to earlier, an unsettling atmosphere for them. And Flick had said he, how much he'd sounded a bit like you, Hugh, in the um, podcast we did to build up to the World Cup. He's a big fan of the way Japan play. He, he, he didn't think this was going to be an easy game at all. He knew exactly 
the problems they would pose, their precision, energy, and so on. I, I, I think it was, and if you go through player by player, it's a, it's an ex, <laughs> Germany are an excellent team. It's just that I think it didn't click for them. I really wouldn't, I really wouldn't say they were arrogant and complacent. I would say they were unsettled. They were unsettled and they were outdone by on the day a more astute coach. Can I can I just add something there? Because look, at club, Chelsea, Kai Havertz has not really established himself in a position that you actually totally believe that's the one for him. You know, is it a number 10? Is it a centre forward? Is it, you know, playing the right side of a midfield? Now today against Japan, I've watched him get caught offside numerous times, you know, really being lazy in his thinking. Not so much because he's really quick and he's got some great attributes, but he kept getting caught being offside. And he didn't do anything that a centre-forward should be doing. He very rarely controlled the play when it came into him. He was a bit sloppy with his, his control and his pass. And I again, I came away thinking... When is Kai Havertz going to really convince not only me, but a lot of other uh, people in the game that he actually can be a great player for Germany and for Chelsea at a football club? He feels like he's on the fringes of games way too often. And this is a real talent. I've seen him play games where I've come away thinking, I think that's going to happen for him now. I think his career is really going to get going. And today I came away thinking... Kai Havertz has still got to learn a hell of a lot. I know he's a young man, but he's really got to learn how to game manage his, his, his style of play because it was a problem for Germany today, the way he played. I think Kai Havertz is worthy of his own, well, his own podcast, maybe his own thesis at a university, actually, because when he joined Chelsea, do you remember we were told, we were told, well, he was in an interview and he said that football isn't his life. He has other interests and other passions. He's one of those players who are prepared to say football's a job, not a way of being. And I think sometimes you can see it in how he plays. He has that sort of, you know, like you get a um, classroom of kids and there's always one looking out the window, what's going on outside when the teacher's trying to explain <laughs> algebra. He's like that. that was he's me, got... Al. <laughs> it was also me. But it's like, you know, it's, it's like, I don't think he's entirely focused sometimes. I think he has amazing natural gifts and abilities. And when he is focused, he's almost unplayable and he can win a Champions League for you single-handed. He's not rubbish. I'm not saying he's rubbish, but I just don't think... It's as though he's he's on a slightly different plane. He's not always in the, in the, in the moment. No, no, but he wasn't the only one, to be honest, who wasn't in the moment today for Germany. Maybe they were... A little bit distracted um, because we saw them before the game make the most, I, I guess, overt protest in terms of what's happened inside a stadium so far at the World Cup. They covered their mouths for their team photo. It is a striking picture, to be perfectly honest. Uh, straight at the start of the game, of course, they were very unhappy about not being allowed to wear the One Love armbands, uh, what we've spoken about so much. They are one of those nations. Manuel Neuer didn't wear it. He instead wore one of the FIFA anti-discrimination 
Christian armbands. His armband was checked by the assistant referee before the start of the game. And Germany tweeted from their official account as the game kicked off, we wanted to use our captain's armband to take a stand for values that we hold in the Germany national team, diversity and mutual respect. Together with other nations, we wanted our voice to be heard. It wasn't about making a political statement. Human rights are non-negotiable. That should be taken for granted, but it still isn't the case. That's why this message is so important to us. Denying us the armband is the same as denying us a voice. We stand by our position. And we may see more protests as more teams play and we go through the rounds at the World Cup. But certainly, it was a pretty strong message from Germany, I guess, before the game started. Was it the right one? Well, it was entirely appropriate. My, my, if I have any cynicism, it's that I think part of their stance is because they're losing sponsorship deals in Germany because people don't want to be associated with a team that is unable to do what it said it would do, which is make protests. The one they'd planned, as, you, as you've detailed, was not permitted, although it might yet be. This is going to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, so let's see what happens there. But they, they were under enormous pressure, not just morally, but financially, to show that they are going to come good on their promises. Because, I mean, th- this, is, this is the difficulty they're in. They One of the countries who were most vocal about, well, came from a society which has become very vocal about this World Cup and the human rights issues, and so they felt they had to say, well, you know, okay, we, we are going, we're going to compete, but we will make sure that we make our voice heard and we protest in this way. Now, when that's taken away from you, even though everyone knows it's been imposed on them, there is still an element of them looking weak and you're bowing to political pressure where they said they wouldn't. So they had to do something. I think actually if it was a reasonably, you know, off-the-cuff thing, it was it was quite clever because... You can't, you can't, you cannot book someone for covering, <laughs> for putting their hand in front of their mouth. And you couldn't book the entire team for doing that. But what it did underline, I think, you and Tony, is that because the whole team did it, that was the power of it. And if all the countries that had said they wanted to wear the armband, if all the, if all the players had worn it, every single player had worn it would the referee really have sent up booked every single player would i mean you know it, it power comes from doing something on mass and so in a way they've shown by covering their mouths altogether that maybe if those seven nations had ignored fifa they could have got away with wearing the armband after after all it's always a difficult one hugh for me as a, a player and thinking well how are you going to rem- be remembered are you going to remember for the protests you did or are you going to remember be remembered for the football you played so i always think about that as if you really were you know so determined to make an impression and you didn't believe this world cup sh- should have been played here don't come that's how i feel um, I come to work here um, and watch games. I do not agree with a lot of things that have happened for this World Cup. And I certainly didn't agree with Qatar getting in 2010. I was like, really? You're going to take football to a place where is well, First of all, it wasn't ready. And I don't mean with the infrastructure. I mean for the way the world is, you know, how we see it. It is a different idea of of how people are treated. And I don't agree with all that. But then... First feeling was about all of this would have been, 
if you can make a protest at the very end that is so much stronger, but you play the tournament in the right way, you play the game and respect the game and play it, but make the most ambitious protest at the very end. Whoever's the world champions, whoever's, you know, but not everybody's on board with that. That is one of the issues because not every country, you know, we, we know Wales and England have certainly been there, Germany, Denmark most certainly have made made their feelings quite uh, strong. Fans have made their, you know, number of fans. I've been surprised by the lack of support by a number of nations. I've been to World Cups and I've witnessed huge amounts of fans from many different countries. Countries like Poland uh, travel with huge crowds, the Dutch, huge following. Likewise, many others, and that that they've protested in a way, the fans, because they don't agree, um, and they've made their point by not coming. Um, I just would have hoped. I was. Th I kept thinking along the way. Maybe I'm wrong on this, but I really wanted the strongest protest at the very end. If that could be achieved, I don't know, but that's how I felt about it. You need the right country to win the World Cup, as I've tipped. As I've tipped, as I've tipped Denmark, maybe maybe we'll be onto something with that one, Tony. Although they haven't started that one. Um, but 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 what's interesting, I mean, and this backs up your point, Tony, is that the some of the countries that are in the middle of angst over this are the ones that are underperforming. I mean, Casper Hulman. Casper Hulman has said he's he's found it overwhelming having to navigate the moral maze of this whilst also trying to coach the team at the same time. It's, it's tough. It's tough on them to constantly think they have an answer to, you know, it's a dilemma, isn't it? Do you go? Don't you go? Well, overwhelmingly, obviously everyone thinks no one did boycott it. Everyone thinks, well, we will go, but we'll do stuff that makes us feel better about it. And then the stuff you think that would make you feel better, you're not allowed to do. And that causes problems that you have to they're little hurdles you have to jump over whilst you're trying to coach the team and while the players are trying to concentrate on the next match and they can't give it everything because they're not, they're not the ones that really do feel a sense of pain about this morally you know they're not normally as a player you're, you're supposed to be in a bubble aren't you you're supposed to be concentrating on this and this alone and the biggest question you'll have to think about is whether you, you do see your wife or your kids or not i mean that's about it it's it's not supposed to be debating whether you you should or should not be allowed to wear a really really naff armband in the first place so these these are these are these are things they've not had to navigate before and yes I can see your point. If you feel that strongly about it, don't go. But it was it was never it was never really like that for most countries. I think most countries believed they didn't choose they because they didn't choose they didn't vote for Qatar. They are at the mercy of FIFA. They'll go and they'll they'll make what they feel are appropriate gestures of protest. These are now being made illegal, if you like, or not allowed, not permitted whilst the tournament is underway. So, the, you know, the goalposts are moving all the time and that makes it really difficult. I mean, it'd be fantastic if whoever wins the World Cup does something on the podium to show that they, you know, they don't support the country that hosted it. But, I mean, what are the chances of it being one of those countries that are brave enough? Slim, probably. What about how you saw it? Because I've spoken as a ex-footballer that was thinking more and selfishly uh, about 
performance, uh, being there, trying to do the best you can to win games. Uh, do you think I'm wrong on that? Not necessarily wrong. Um, you know, I think it's a valid opinion. It's just, you know, I, I said before the tournament, my hope was that we would get a striking image. My dream state was if we had one of the big four, if you like, Neymar, Ronaldo, Messi or Mbappe giving us that that image using their huge profile to um, to raise awareness to some of the issues. Again, I don't think any of these things will change the world, but I do believe that the players that have gone there, um, well, I don't believe, I just hope that the players that have gone there want to use their position and their, their time in the limelight to do something positive, which is what I think the German players do want to do and, and did do today. I think it was a protest about censorship, but it kind of underlined the fact that FIFA has uh, taken away their chance to do something which would have been less visual. You know, Manuel Neuer barely did anything in the entire game. We wouldn't have been watching his armband throughout. You know, Germany would have played after several other nations that would have worn it. I don't think it would have been a focus. And instead, you know, we got this striking image of the team covering their mouths. And I think underlining to everyone that, that FIFA is, you know, the organisation that we all think it is. I mean, I saw the headlines today that Denmark want to speak to the other 55 UEFA nations um, over coming out of FIFA and not being a part of that anymore after what Infantino has said during this tournament and done. And I think that would be, obviously, that would have huge ramifications for the sport. But um, maybe people are waking up. I know it's taken until we've got to, to the tournament for these things to come to the fore. But I think maybe some footballers and some football associations uh, have hit the point that they just can't be quiet and go along with how football's being run anymore. And I'm one of the people that thinks football does need to change. So that's how I viewed it anyway. I don't know if, if there'll be any change, but I think it keeps the conversation going, which I think is important on this topic. Germany have the chance of being knocked out in the group stage once again. They finished bottom of their group at Russia in 2018. They'll face a similar fate if they can't beat Spain on Sunday night, in particular if they lose to Spain, who beat Costa Rica by seven goals to nil. In what was a farcical performance, would you say, from the Costa Ricans? I mean, is there any mitigation for the lack of competition that we saw in a World Cup game, Tony? The game itself, I mean, one thing that stood out for me, and I didn't catch it all, uh, Hugh, because I was coming back from a game I was working on. But from what I did see was that the selection of the Spanish team and playing Rodri at the back, and it looked like a total football team. It was like a team that you go to the gym to, to, to play on a Monday night and where everyone gets on the ball, it's like a five-a-side, and you keep moving it and you keep passing. Well, they totally outpassed Costa Rica incredibly and kept the ball brilliantly. And that was a standout feature. And I don't know, but Hugh, I've said to you this before uh, over the last week or so, that some of the pitches, the, the ball moves really fast on the pitch all the time. It feels like the ball's going to run out of play. It's like the famous old AstroTurf type of pitches. But this is normal grass, which was quite weird. Let me ask you a question on this, because we did notice at a couple of the games that the grass was being cut because we've been going in so early, the grass was being cut before games, probably about an hour and a half before the game started. I'm not sure that's normal, is it, to cut the grass on the entire pitch just before? No, and it was ridiculously slick. Every pass, especially going forward, would run away from the player. 
And that was weird. I kept thinking that as a game, I'm thinking he's going to get there. The player's going to get there and the ball would get quicker. So you're probably right here, I mean, because I don't ever remember pitches being, or so, certainly the grass being cut so late um, before the game. Yeah, I think that, that maybe was the case. But again, do you really honestly believe that is any kind of mitigating factor for the Costa Rican performance? No, no. I, look, Spain are unbelievably gifted at keeping the ball. And they moved it around and it was just fast and interchanging play. And, you know, when you have a team that go up, what they've thrown it up very, very quickly. And then from there, it just looked, Costa Rica looked a very poor side. The Spanish, when they're on, and they've had this with their club teams, when they move the ball fast and keep it and you can't get it off them, they can be, look, they've been world champions for a reason. You know, they've done this before, not just to Costa Rica, but some very good, they literally you know, kill you with passing. All they do is keep the ball and say all, because that's really difficult to do. But they do it as well as anybody. Certainly over the last couple of decades, the Spanish teams have been amazing at just moving that ball, keeping it, always have another option on. Everyone wants in the ball. And Luis Enrique's team did that brilliantly today. How much do we read into this? A 7-0 win at the World Cup for Spain, Alison? Well, it was quite funny on the um, the TV coverage, the pundits were like you can't you really can't read anything at all into it but I I think you probably can in that it's possible to play a team that are a bit slow and a bit unambitious and find it difficult to get through them whereas Spain looked like it was completely effortless there were almost a thousand passes completed 82 percent possession they what they did. What, the reason I think you probably can read something into it is that they were very comfortable. They were very patient without being overly boring. Some of the the technical skin skill was outstanding, and I think people who've not bigging up Spain are forgetting that in Gavi and Pedri that Spain have two of the the talents, young talents that. We were all really hoping we'd do well on the world stage because, you know, we'd heard that they might blossom in time and they did. I mean, they, you know, they, <laughs> it's it's one it's one thing to have that weight of expectation and others play as if it doesn't exist, which is what both of them were like. I mean, Gavi's now the youngest person to have scored a World Cup since Pelé. It just, they felt like a team as well uh, that's that's something you can read into it that going forward when they're faced with tougher opposition that will hold them in good stead so i think i think you can i mean they also missed a few chances and they won't probably i mean but you know navas is a good goalkeeper i was going to say it was but it, you know it's like you have to be able to read something into it if 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 you're playing against a decent keeper and a team that team that have no. a few names you've heard of before and they weren't, no. they weren't, they weren't, they weren't, I don't think they didn't, didn't play like a team that have been, you know, told not to play or had some sort of ulterior motivation. No. It was, you keep saying no. Why do you keep saying no? No, Alison, no, no, you can't read deeper into it. Unfortunately, I speak as, as I think it was me who tipped Spain to do well. Even I am not gloating after a 7-0 victory because Costa Rica were that bad. Kayla Navas didn't have a good game. The defensive line was embarrassing and they made Spain look far better than they are. And again, I'm speaking as someone that thinks they'll have a good World Cup campaign and that they're a good team as well. They're nowhere near as good as Costa Rica made them look today. I mean, when they get a couple of players back, 
possibly Pau Torres, for example, to play centre-half instead of Rodri. Obviously, you don't want Rodri, Rodri playing centre-back against some of the better nations. But no, at times today, Costa Rica were, were embarrassing. Um, and again... I know that, that Spain keep the ball really, really well. And I think you would expect them to do that. No, 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 no. Let me say game. no, no, no back to you, Hugh. Because you've, you've, <laughs> no. because because the fact that they have won. Costa Rica were awful. The fact awful. that they have won their opening game 7-0 and look good will help them be the better t- a better team than they would have been if they hadn't. So it doesn't matter in that sense. The point is they will be feeling so I don't, I don't think it will. No, I don't think it will. I don't think it will help them to be a better team because I, I don't think that you can take anything from the game in terms of a, a true analysis because the opposition were not at the level that they needed to be at. It was just, uh, uh, I'm sorry, it was a no contest. First of all, Hugh, I'd say Rodri could easily play at the back the whole tournament. If you've got Gavi and you've got Petri in midfield, you can still cause lots of problems because them two are very capable of keeping the ball for fun. And they will do that. And if you put Rodri at the back, he will play with a cigar at the centre-half position. And, you know, he is really that good in that position. I watched him last year play at the back for Man City a few times towards the end of the season. He never broke sweat in that position. He's very strong in the air. He's comfortable on the ball. He's got enough ability defensively to read things, make tackles and get the ball back. He keeps the ball. I just think, I just think he will cruise through that position. So I think it's a, I learned that today that that coach in the coach of Spain, Luis Enrique, has already come up with a tactic that I think he can implement in other games against better teams with having Rodri at the back. I really think that's a a big positive for them. And the other side of it is that when a young team, and they've got a very young side in many ways, Spain, when they go and cruise past someone, you don't know because the next game is Spain up up next. Sorry, the next game is Germany up next. That game is a game that I believe Spain can win, could knock Germany out of the tournament. And they are capable of doing that. And with young players who get a belief in what they're doing, and they can be exciting as they can, that is what I think was good for Spain. That's what they learned today. Yes, the opposition weren't great, Hugh. I totally agree with that. But they didn't beat them 2-0 or 3-0. They beat them 7. You know, that's still a huge result. And Costa Rica have come through, you know, it's never easy to get to a World Cup finals. You know, most of the teams that are there are decent level. They were just embarrassed tonight. And I tell you what, I learned that Spain are probably ahead of where Luis Enrique thinks, he, thinks they might have been, and they can take this on into the German game. Okay, all right, I've been told. I definitely think Spain could beat Germany. Uh, it's going to be a massive game at the weekend. Um, like I say, personally, that will be a big barometer of where they are, particularly against the German side that needs a, a result. I still tip them to do well. The 7-0 kind of backs up my my Japan prediction as well. So all in all, a fantastic day for Woozy's World Cup predictions. Let's talk about one of the other games, uh, Canada. Oh my word, Canada, who played their first World Cup game in 36 years. They took on Belgium. They had the better of the first half. They had a penalty given, missed by Alfonso Davis, their big star. 
They probably should have had another penalty as well. One straight long ball down the middle, finished by Mishi Batshuayi, was the only goal of the game. And Canada, I think, Alison, will ruin most of, of the things that they could have done better. It just, it just felt like a little bit of naivety at this level and maybe the occasion got to them. What did you think? Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that, actually, Hugh, because I thought I thought the opposite because they were audacious. Some of the moves, to, they, they scythed through midfield. They took risks with some of their passing. They worked hard. I actually don't think I've ever seen a World Cup game quite like this one. Their athleticism, their bravery was astonishing. And most of it came off. They just didn't... I don't think it was the occasion got to them. They just didn't have the quality when it came to the final ball or the imagination. And maybe, maybe, maybe you're right, maybe it was slight nerves. But, I mean, it was it was so one-sided in terms of every single category apart from uh, someone capable of finishing a, sh- finishing a move off, which is what Batshuayi did. Other than that, they, they I mean, they'd have won fans all around the world. I, I, I thought they'd be a bit like America, who... who you know, the USA team are based on athleticism largely, but they were like that times 20. It was remarkable, the effort. And I mean, you know, a, a missed penalty. It was a bad penalty, actually. So that might have been nerves, although I don't know why a defend, essentially a defender took, 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 took one. I mean, who else? I mean, it should be someone else on penalty duty. We now know Canada can't win the World Cup because at some point they're going to have to face a penalty shootout and they're going to be rubbish at them. But the, it's, it, apart from that, which, which was, it seemed a bit naff, really, I, I, just, I just thought, wow, I had no idea that it was going to be so one-sided. I don't know. I don't know about the Belgian lineup. It felt very rooted in the past and not looking forwards at all. It was a very strange lineup. I'm not sure what Witzel does week in, week out to, to, to merit, well, year in, year in, out, I should say, year in, year out, because he's always there and he's reasonably average. It was it was strange. And, you know, Hazard isn't the Hazard we all knew when he played at Chelsea. He hasn't recovered that form. It just felt like, I don't know, a bit sort of dreamy, like hoping they were still the golden generation and they're not. They they were outrun and outfought. And uh, yeah, I think I think most of the world were and they might not have had a single thought about it, but by the time they'd watched twenty minutes were thinking, come on, Canada. Well the thing is, uh Alison, when I was talking about naivety, I think the Alfonso Davis penalty taking almost summed it up I mean I couldn't believe there wasn't a forward in the Canada team that wanted to take a penalty at a World Cup to score a goal if he's the best penalty taker they've got then I I agree with you they've got issues but yeah I think when I talked about the naivety it was almost a feeling that you know eventually the goal is going to come and it's just not like that you know you you have to take those opportunities and chances especially against a nation like Belgium who aren't going to play badly for an entire game they're just not with the players that they've got in their side and I just felt like you didn't feel that sense of urgency to put the ball in the back of the net and I think that now kind of comes with you know playing in matches of this magnitude and at tournaments like this because I think even when you saw the momentum change between Germany and Japan you you sort of felt that Japan sensed this this is our moment. We have to score. And you never really felt Canada understood 
that that was it. That, you know, that that half an hour period you have to take advantage of or you might not get another chance. And I, I've always felt that that was going to be the story of the game. Belgium were going to sucker punch them and, and that happened. And I was, I was kind of disappointed for Canada. I, I, again, I think they should have had another penalty when the ball ran through to a player who was deemed to be in an offside position but actually came off a, a defender. Um, and I think he may have been fouled with a, a sort of stamp on the boot and that probably should have been given. I'm not a big fan of how VAR's been used so far in this tournament. But um, in the end, Belgium got the victory and and another shock was averted. Tony, do you think Canada do have the, the opportunity or at least showed us today that they could surprise us in the next couple of games? Well, they played with an enthusiasm and drive and, like Alison said, athleticism, which is going to take you to some good situations in a game. You said there, Hugh, you know, Alfonso Davies are missing a penalty. You know, it doesn't have to be a forward that takes penalties. You know, they, there's many people that are capable of being... I Look, we had Dennis Irwin with Republic of Ireland. Dennis Irwin is one of the best strikers of a ball, you know, from a dead ball situation. And there was a naivety to them that, look, this is a relatively new team, as in an international side that's developing. What did surprise me is their level of performance. Because I don't... Also, I have a problem with Belgium because I think Belgium are clearly way past their best. You know, when you've got Michi Bashway up front for you, and I know they've had injuries to others, there's there's not nowhere near the core. Eddie Nazard is nowhere near the player he once was. He still makes his team after a really dreadful time. There's a lot of older players, certainly defensively, that we could talk about. You know, so I think this is nowhere near the Belgium team of 2018. I think they're a lot poorer side. So, Canada probably have got them at a good time and they've wasted that opportunity of not getting results. Yeah, I kind of agree with you on that one, but there you go. Uh, I guess one of the positives for them in terms of their chances of qualification is that Croatia didn't win. They were held to a goalless draw by Morocco. Um, as we've been speaking, I've watched pretty much the entirety of the game. I saw most of it earlier as well, but um, just on second glance, you know, there wasn't really any real quality in the game. I didn't see Croatia control the game that we'd uh, come to expect from them. Of course, runners up at the last World Cup. Um, just again, a team that is is very different. Maybe a team that wasn't at their absolute best in their opening game. Lots of fight and endeavour from Morocco, as you'd expect, to be honest. I think Croatia did bring a, a level of energy and tenacity that was required, but maybe just not the level of quality. And of course, a bit like a few other, other nations, the lack of a genuine goal scorer maybe counted against them uh, in this game. Had a couple of good chances to maybe win the game. But yeah, I don't think we take a lot from that other than Croatia need to improve very, very quickly. And Morocco, again, you know, it's a very good point for them, but um, we can't tell whether they're going to be a side that's going to shock us in this tournament just yet. Um, any disagreements with what I've said, Alison? No, not really. I mean, I was looking out for Luka Modric, um, as you know, big fan of his. Uh, and I had a slight panic that maybe he peaked at the Champions League final and he's going downhill now. Because what he did was... Um, most notably was he was fouling. And I think if he hadn't been Luka Mottridge, he might have got booked and then booked again. He, he, he wasn't... I think you, you mentioned they didn't control midfield, which is what they do normally, and it's usually down to him. Because he couldn't, I think Morocco were very, very energetic and annoying for them. He found himself, because he wasn't controlling, he was fouling. And... 
that I think will give heart to whoever they next meet will think, ah, oh, this is this is good. We can get them rattled. Maybe I'm used to seeing Croatia look very calm under pressure. That's what's been behind their successes in recent years. And they I wouldn't say they were a mess or anything like that, but they they look gettable at and it looked like you can rattle Modric. And if you can rattle Modric, then you can rattle the whole of the Croatia team. So, yes, um, it, it was it was one of those uh, sort of chess-like matches which are quite absorbing, but I don't know how much you can learn from. But what we... I mean, Belgium, I think we've all agreed, were disappointing and are living in the past, but Courtois is at the very, very peak of his powers. And if you've got one of the world's, if not the world's best goalkeeper, you can you can get through a tournament. Yeah, I think they could. Again, that's Belgium. I think for Croatia, I need to see a step up in terms of quality if they're going to, you know, astound us once again. Very much a team, uh, I think, on the downhill trajectory. The only surprise, I think, for me was looking at their bench, seeing, you know, some of the newer faces. I thought maybe some of those would be included. They certainly relied on... Um, some of the players, of course, who've had fantastic international careers with Croatia. And I think if they freshen things up, play some of the younger players who are on the bench today, they probably would have had a better outcome. But, but look, we'll see if they can bounce back. Uh, looks like it could be a very tight group indeed. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Okay, before we end the podcast, um, there is a challenge that a lot of people out here at the World Cup are trying to achieve. Many fans are hoping to get to four games in a day. Well, our very own Matt Dickinson did just that. You can read all about it on the Times app or just have a listen to Tom Clark catching up with him a little bit earlier. So, Matt Dickinson, the Time Sports Marathon man out in Qatar, four games in one day. Tell us all about it. Uh, well, it had to be tried, didn't it? Um, and yeah. I think I think done. Um, I mean, I've had to, there's a couple of readers already quibbling if you know if you leave a game after 80 minutes, does that disqualify you? Um, but I would uh, argue staunchly in my defence that um, I didn't miss a goal. Um, that was 
possibly helped by the fact that there were no goals in two of the games. But um, <laughs> but no, it was uh, it was brilliant. I mean, so many different stories to tell. Um, as I hope I've done in the article, there's obviously the football story, which you know when when your day of four games starts with uh, one of the most sensational World Cup upsets of all time, then you you, you know you're you know you're off to a good day. There's the issues of just you know this extraordinary not just controversial but compact world cup you know world cup in basically a city and its suburbs could i get around you know how does that work you know the, the gleaming metro trains um will they be as slick as you hope there's the ticketing issue the fifa app my fifa app kept crashing you know i think personally it's a scandal that um you know you can be there with a you know t- paid for ticket and not even be sure it's going to appear maybe end up in a queue i i thought that uh, i wasn't going to get into one of the games magically my ticket appeared but it, you know it's stressful um really stressful for fans to have to go through that um you know there's the fact that i saw Kylian Mbappe, Lionel Messi, Robert Lewandowski and many many more in the same day and then there is the the fans I got to mix with, and I'd say absolutely that was the highlight. Two of the matches I was in the with with the fans, the Mexico fans for one game, Tunisia fans for another game, and they were just fantastic. You know, it. You know, the press boxes are huge at World Cups, and actually they can become a little bit sterile um, if you're not careful. So to actually be in the thick of the the passion. Um, was an absolute treat. Well, it all sounds brilliant. And obviously you, you tell the story brilliantly uh, in the piece and in the video that you can watch online and on social media. In the video, you kind of seem fairly composed, not too out of breath. I know you're a very fit and healthy man. Were there any moments when you're sprinting for a train or a metro, nearly missed it? Any moments of doubt? Yeah, I'd have to say I'd, it's a big, big decision after game three trying to get out of uh, Stadium 974 because the, the final stadium, there's only two stadia here that you can't get to on a metro. Um, so there are you know, different buses or I decided to, to, to do the last one on an, uh, to get an Uber. Um, but getting an Uber near a stadium, you're obviously sudden, suddenly you're in a, a world of pain of you, the, the, you have huge perimeters to get away from the grounds. Then massive complications with road closures. And I thought I'd made a terrible tactical error. But uh, I had um, the world's friendliest Uber driver, um, Nadim from Pakistan, um, who we had a lovely chat with um, on the way, telling me about what brought him to Qatar. And this, again, was one of the joys of doing this. You know, we like to do this anyway, but this particular job, this particular mission, flying around, you know, sitting with the fans, you know, random seats, you know, you didn't know who I was going to turn up and be next to, jumping in this Uber and chatting to people, because this is an extraordinary World Cup. Qatar is an extraordinary place um, for better and certainly, as we've written, for worse in many ways. And it was a fantastic way just to sort of immerse myself in this World Cup. And um, But I'd say that 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 final journey, it turned out, Right in the end, he promised me he would get me there on time and um, and he delivered. But yeah, that was one wobble as well as, say, the FIFA app, which, you know, there was an extraordinary scene where that that third game, when I have, was having a ticket wobble, so had many other fans and they basically ushered a load of us through without checking properly. And, you know, that in itself is, is pretty alarming. I mean, it was all fine. There's not been a, a sort of issue of of that type of of you know crushing or um safety security away from the fan zone yet but you know you do see things like this that the, the, the sort of whole system is under strain in a tournament like this and obviously it revealed a bit of that as well well here's to nadim and his heroic uh, uber driving you mentioned the uh, fans 
and the people you met along the way, but you also mentioned some of the footballing moments that you witnessed, Kylian Mbappe, of course, with a big win for France and Argentina's defeat. Were you able to enjoy the football? What were the kind of things that you were picking out whilst you were watching the matches? Yeah, I mean, obviously that, you know, the start off with with, with Argentina versus, you know, the Saudi uh, win right next to it, the main group of Saudi fans who were all taking off their headscarves and, and uh, waving them around there. I mean, yeah, absolutely extraordinary brilliant passion i mean that stadium is quite something to behold um so you know that game itself um i mean it was an absolute agony to to see the clock hit 80 minutes see think this is you know one of the great game world cup games and upsets in the balance but i just basically had to make a uh Mm-hmm. make a decision um I, I have to say I'd credit to Matt Barlow of the Daily Mail who we were kept sort of crisscrossing on this path but he um he, what did he what's the line he said yeah um it's the Lucille Stadium he said yes it's a fine time to leave the Lucille um mm-hmm. any, Kenny, any Kenny Rogers fans will appreciate that one <laughs> um but yeah so to, to tear myself away from that was an agony um I also um uh had missed missed um yeah, basically, I missed the sort of. I'd set myself a limit of a minimum seventy-five minutes. Tried to get to eighty on each of the games, which I, I, I pretty much did. So you know, say certainly, certainly, certainly didn't miss any goals. Um, saw all the kickoffs, but I just think it's you know it raises interesting questions about you know where the World Cup can be if it can be staged here. Obviously, at quite colossal, absurdly co- colossal and extravagant expense. You know, where else in the world can it be staged? Uh, obviously, we, you know, um, in terms of geography, in terms of resources and so on. Um, it's, you know, the, the, the football itself, you know, do do fans, if they can afford it, and this is a very expensive World Cup, would you want to watch more than one, even two games in a day? Do, do, you know, what is the appetite for that? Um, but as a, yeah, I, I suspect here in particular, the expense might prove as... Uh, as, <laughs> as um, uh, much of a pr- sort of prohibitive as anything. Well, you you raise the tantalising prospect there, Dicko, with future tournaments, and I've got to ask in my edit with my editing hat on. Would you do it again? Um, well, I think I mentioned in the piece that there is a, a YouTuber. Um, my teenage sons are familiar with him. I admit to being rather less familiar. Um, who's trying to do all sixty four now? As somebody has pointed out, given that there are final group games that that coincide how's that possible well again the 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 sort of weird thing about this world cup is that you know if you call this counting doing the games he could see the first five minutes of certain games and easily hop over the city to get the last you know 10 of another game and whether say i'm sure some will sort of go to the guinness book of records and ask whether that you know qualifies as seeing a match or not um you know i i I loved it as a one-off it was brilliant i got to see some brilliant you know say some of the greatest players in the world um perform i loved it um i just wish if i've got one regret it was that um i had to celebrate with a bud bud zero at the end of the night and i i have to say i was quite keen having um, sweated my way around Doha to uh, have something a little stronger (laughs) absolutely well I promise when you get back I'll buy you a beer fantastic effort Matt Dickinson thanks very much thank you all for listening make sure you hit that notification button we will have new episodes for you each and every morning loads of great writing on the Times app so download that or go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to subscribe to that as well okay we'll see you tomorrow thanks for listening
VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.